I wanted to take a break this week from Luke for a special message for uh, our graduates. At the same time, it is a passage that is near and dear to my heart, and I think one that's very, very applicable to all of us. Uh, I would consider this uh, one of the most personally impactful uh, sections of Scripture in my life in the entire Bible. Uh, This passage, I believe, reveals the key to our Christian walk, and I think it's a great passage to look at. So we're going to take a little bit of a break this week from Luke and just look at this passage. Revealed in this passage are two ways to live in this world, the way of life and the way of death. This passage gives us a glimpse into the purpose of every true believer and how to accomplish this purpose. It also reveals the futility of the rest of the world and why they will ultimately be destroyed. The two ways to live are fruit-bearing lives and that enjoy Christ and then the fruitless lives that will be judged one day. What is a Christian? Up to a billion people claim to be Christians in this world right now. Is everyone who claims to be a Christian a genuine Christian? How do we know if a person's a Christian or not? Better, and even more importantly, how do we know if we are genuine Christians? And what does our life, what is our life supposed to look like? The single greatest cry of the world against Christianity is hypocrisy. That is the cry. Well, today we're going to see the problem is not Christianity. It is who is claiming to be a Christian. It's not Christianity. It's who's claiming to be a Christian. If someone says they are Christian and does not make the and does not bear fruit, they are giving a horrible picture of what a Christian is. Does a profession of faith make them a believer? Hardly so. We're going to see today that being a Christian is not about what we say about ourselves. It's about how we are related to Christ. This is a sermon I will uh, teach... uh, this sermon that we'll, uh, I, I'm going to teach on this passage is highly uh, uh, influenced by a book, and I strongly advise all of you to write the title down. Here you go. I'm going to give you a book, and I want you to look it up. It's called Abiding in Christ, Abiding in Christ, by Dr. James Roscop. He's a retired seminary professor from Master Seminary now, but a man that I dearly love, and wrote this book on abiding in Christ, and it's all on these verses, 1 through 6. It's a whole book on those verses. It's one of the best commentaries on any section of Scripture, maybe in the entire in my entire library. Um, and it's one of my top five favorite books of all books I've read. I strongly advise you to get it. The passage we will be focused on today is what the book's about, and he, he helps me dramatically with this passage. We're going to focus on John 15 in the middle of the upper room discourse, right? This is the time that Jesus was speaking to encourage his disciples right before he was going to go to the cross. These words come as he faces death the very next night. When everyone else would have been totally consumed with his own coming suffering, Jesus knew it was coming, Jesus is totally focused on encouraging his closest disciples and friends. It's staggering uh, just how much Christ shows his love for his own in this passage and in this whole section of scripture. In the upper room discourse, we get a glimpse into how much God loves his children. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus has already washed their feet in John 13, and he's used such phrases that are... Beautiful terms of endearment, little phrases of endearment, like he's called them little children in 1333. And he said the phrase that we probably all heard numerous times, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you in John 14, 1. He says, 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. In John 14, 27. Jesus is encouraging them. This is like beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus giving them the gigantic spiritual hug. Saying, look, I know things are going to get rough, but I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to know how much I care. And he gives these beautiful words in John 15 that we're going to focus in on today. Before he faces his own death, maybe the hardest 24 hours to come for these disciples, they're going to go through some intense struggles and trials. They're going to see the one they dearly loved arrested, and a couple of them are going to see him beaten at the cross. This has got to be the most extreme point in the lives of Peter and the disciples, and Jesus takes the moment, the time, to encourage them. So we come to these verses. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This passage is an illustration of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, again, a picture story that Jesus gives to encourage his closest followers in their walk with him. There's four main characters in the passage. We see the vine, the vine dresser, the fruitless branches, and the fruitful branches. Each of these represent um, either a group of people or a, a specific person. Jesus uses these four metaphorical characters to reveal this true relationship. Today we're going to see an abiding relationship with Jesus is the one and only satisfying way to live in this world. An abiding relationship with Jesus Christ is the one and only way to live in this world. We start with the first character. Notice the vine in verse 1. He says, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is an illustration used by Jesus to point to his own deity. This is one of the seven uh, passages that are the I am phrases throughout the Gospel of John that emphasize the deity and sonship of Jesus Christ. He's pointing to him being God, that he is the true vine. Yet, also it is a picture that points to Israel. And it shows a huge contrast because he says, I am the true vine. I am the perfect vine. As opposed to what the Old Testament had shown. In the Old Testament, Israel was often identified as the vine of God. But it was an imperfect vine. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, I myself am the true perfect vine. I am the vine of life, as it may be. Jesus is that one. John wrote this gospel so that people would believe in Jesus and that they would have life in Christ, right? John 20, look at it. This verse says it. John 20, 31, he tells why he wrote it. But these have been written, talking about the gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have Life in his name. A vine provides life to the branches. And literally what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the perfect vine. I'm the one that provides perfect life. Satisfying, all-fulfilling life. I am that true vine. Folks, being in union with Jesus is the only place we find true life. He is the true vine. Who are you tied to? Who are we tied to? Who are we connected to? Who are we associated with? The answers to these questions determines whether we're living or dying. We'll see. If we're connected to Christ and Christ is all of our life and we're in union with Him, we will live. But if we are not in union with Him and our life is not all about Him, we will die. Jesus is the true vine, the life giver. Notice the next character we see in verse 2. It says the vine dresser, the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Oh, folks, get this. This is an illustration of God's ownership, his sovereignty over all things. This is a picture that pointed to God's rule or role of destroying the wicked and pruning the righteous. This is an illustration that points to God's main goal for people, ladies and gentlemen. Get this. His goal or purpose for people is bearing fruit, folks. God wants us and desires for us to bear fruit. He wants fruit bearers. That's what we should be characterized by. That's what followers of Jesus are. God has a main goal for us all. It is to bear this fruit. And this means God will bring it about. He's going to do whatever it takes to have that happen in your life. It's a guarantee. God wants you to do good works for him and glorify him. Yes, God wants glory for himself. And that is a good thing. We want God to be shown off, don't we? And God is going to bring this about in our lives. This is repeated over and over throughout Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2 we see, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ladies and gentlemen, God saves us in Christ and puts us in Christ for good works. Both of these verses use word pictures to reveal both the John 15 and the Ephesians 2. To reveal God's purpose for his own. What? God has a purpose for you. You ready? He has a purpose for you. Bear fruit. Good works. That's your purpose. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, this literally is, is we are God's work of art. Living work of art. And the whole reason why he has made us this living work of art is for what? Purpose. To do good works. That's why we're here. God's goal for us as the vine dresser is for us to bear fruit. You know, I wish everybody could have been there Thursday night. It was, it was a special night. Um, just hearing the testimonies of the graduates, it was awesome. Um, one of our ladies, as I mentioned, Kia gave her testimony, and it was uh, so very encouraging. She made the point that uh, that in the early walk with her with the Lord, and even beforehand, she had never heard that it was guaranteed for Christians to suffer. She didn't understand that. that this, it was the lot of Christians to suffer. Um, that verse was never obviously told to her. Um, there is one thing that's promised. You ready? You will be persecuted. <laughs> There is suffering coming for all of us that are Christians. And as she explained it, it was just staggering to me to see how, though she had to learn it the hard way, you could just tell that God's grace had been over and over and over demonstrated in her life. Because no matter how bad it got, she's gone through some tough stuff. Father passed away. It's been a tough three years. God's grace has just been poured out on her. He's been showing himself through her. When she finished, she was like, I know I could go on and on and on. I said, man, keep going. I'm thinking to myself, keep going. I want to hear about Jesus. I'm seeing Jesus. It's beautiful. That's what it's about, ladies and gentlemen. God is at work in us to show himself off. And he did. And he is. And he will in all of us. He's demonstrating his glory. Now, does that mean that it sometimes can be painful? Yes. He will prune us in order for us to demonstrate even more glory. So as we're pruned, we go, yes, God, you are big, you are great, and you are sufficient. I want to be pruned. Do you want to be pruned? Pruning is a painful process, as we'll see. But it's what God does to demonstrate himself. So 
prune us, right? Shape us. Make us look like Jesus. Demonstrate your son. That's what the vine dresser does. He prunes us. We'll see. So the summary of the vine dresser is, the vine dresser is the Lord God working through his son, the true vine, to produce fruit in the son's branches. God is all about producing fruit in us. Branches attached to the vine. God's in control and he is working with his son's branches. That's good news. We can be sure God does not waste a moment in the lives of his own. He is all about every second of your day. (laughs) I know that sounds strange. How often do we focus our attention on the Lord? Not near as much as we should, right? God's attention on us never departs. He is constantly, always working to make you look more like Jesus. Every second of your day. Even when the kids misbehave. (laughs) Or your boss treats you bad. He's still working. (laughs) All of it. He's the vine dresser. Notice the next. I want to focus now on the fruitful branches and the fruitless branches. The last two. And we'll probably focus a little bit more on this. Let's look at the fruitful branches. This is found in 2, verses 2 and f- through 5. Let's look at the three aspects of, uh, of the fruitful branches. First, the characteristics of the fruitful branches. That's found in verse 2 at the end. It says, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Here we go. Let's talk about this. There are branches that bear fruit. It is so important for you to understand, ladies and gentlemen, that everybody that is in Christ will bear fruit. It's not an option. Notice every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. It's not an option. And, and it, fruit is mentioned eight times in these verse, up through verse 17. It is an emphasis of Jesus. Dr. Roscoe stated this, Fruit is what life is all about. That's what we're all about. We're all about fruit. If we stop producing fruit, if we're his, that's because we're in heaven. (laughs) Do you understand? And we're probably producing fruit there (laughs) because all we do is exalt him and glorify him. If we're not producing fruit here on the world, if we're a believer, we're in heaven and we're producing it there. Fruit comes ultimately from God, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to notice that. Hosea 14.8 says this, From me comes fruit. How do we produce good works? God. He produces good works in us. Philippians 1.11 says, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. How about Philippians 2.13? For it is God who is at work both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is producing fruit in us. Galatians 5.22. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Why? (laughs) Because it's the Spirit-produced fruit. What are those? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Is that something that just comes natural to us humans? (laughs) No. No. It comes from God. He's the fruit producer. He's the ultimate source. Second, fruit is not what the world says it is. I cannot stress this enough to you. The world says it's being outwardly successful. It says, look at the outside of the cup and then you'll be able to see fruit. That's not necessarily true, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Roscoe stated this, it's perfect. It is possible to confuse outward success of the moment with fruit. Because humans often look at the outside while God looks at the inside. You know, when we look at a congregation, and I find this even in my own ministry, there can be times where I'm not producing fruit, God-honoring fruit, even though there's plenty of people around and plenty of ministry going on. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, I can be talking to people, ministering to people, but it can be not God-honoring fruit, not spirit-produced fruit. 
we can cover, we can make things look. You look at the outside and you say, oh, well, that guy's really got it all together. There's lots of fruit there. <laughs> but God-type fruit is about the heart, what's going on inside there. It's the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, even when outward circumstances look totally wrong. So be careful of defining fruit by what the world says is fruit. The world says big, flashy, sensational. That's fruit. But that's not necessarily fruit from God. After all, Matthew 7, what did he say? What is the way that leads to destruction? But narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. So God picks the smaller things, the less sensational, to actually demonstrate his glory. Ladies and gentlemen, be careful of judging fruit based on the outward externals. The world says it is following a program. Again, a man-made program may bring outward appearance of fruit. But again, God's ways are not our ways. Following a program for success can be actually one big lie. For example, we can have a program that attracts lots of people. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's God's fruit, right? So folks, be careful of defining fruit by what the world says. The world says what looks uh, sacred or religious is also fruit. That's not true always. Who were the most religious in Jesus' day? They looked the most religious on the outward, but their hearts were what? Wicked. Religion, outward external, that is not it. The world says it's what can be copied too, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Acting like someone we think is a Christian does not necessarily mean that we're bearing the same fruit. Now think about that for a second. Just because you look like somebody else and you say the same words they say doesn't mean that you're really producing the same fruit they're producing, if they're even producing fruit. Fruit is about what's going on in here. And it comes from God. Third, fruit is what the word of God says is fruit. Not what we define as fruit. The word says fruit is an attitude. Did you hear me? Fruit is an attitude. John 14 and 15 and Galatians 5. All of these are attitudes of the heart. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's fruit from God, but that's an attitude. Often that is expressed in different ways, isn't it? Somebody can be gentle, and you might not even see it and know it. You might not know what's going on in the heart. But we know in our own hearts, don't we? Have you ever had one of these? Have you ever had a temper tantrum in your head? <laughs> that's called what sin that's not fruit is it just as bad as the little three-year-old that throws himself on the floor and screams yes it's worse if you're a believer it's worse you know christ Ladies and gentlemen, it's about our hearts. It's about our attitudes. Fruit is what the Word of God says. Notice the Word of God also says in Romans 15, 28 that it's about giving of oneself, sacrificing of oneself. And then in Colossians 1, 10, the Word says that fruit is good works. So it does sometimes include actions. <laughs> fruit does include actions as Colossians 1.10 states. It's not just attitude. It often leads to actions that come from God, that are produced from God. Remember, dying to self, practically putting others above, before yourself, comes from an attitude that puts others' interests above yourself, right? And then you do it. There is action. Now, again, I cannot stress this enough. It's not something that you muster up in your own strength. It's by God's grace that you do it. And you do it, though. You do it. By God's grace. The word says fruit is praising God. 
In Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So praising God and thanking God is fruit of God. So to summarize, fruit is a God-produced attitude that leads to actions that glorifies God. A fruitful branch is characterized by a person who is producing this kind of genuine fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness demonstrated in our lives. This is what a believer does. We will see how he produces this fruit in a minute. But second, notice they are pruned to bear more fruit. We talked about this briefly, but let's talk about pruning a little bit. It's an ongoing process of cutting away useless parts of our life. (laughs) Do you get that? It's an ongoing process of cutting away useless parts of our life. Now, that includes a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) How much useless stuff do we have in our lives? (laughs) Lots. (laughs) Which means we're going to be pruned a lot. (laughs) It's going to be painful. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I was staggered when I went to Israel and, and, and saw the difference of the way that grapes were grown there and the grapes that I saw in North Carolina. I, I saw a great, I, I knew this guy in, in, in North Carolina that had an amazing grapevine. I mean, it was huge. It, it, I mean, there were leaves everywhere. This thing was giant. Everywhere. I mean, you could walk. It was bigger than this room. It was huge grapevine, okay, with leaves everywhere. I go to Israel, and they say, here, let me show you these grapes. And you go over, and it's like a stick bush that's maybe about that tall. There's hardly anything there, but there's grapes everywhere on this thing. I mean, there, there, there's tons of them. You go to this other one, and it's got a lot of space. But, you know, you got to look for the grapes. Where are they? You know, they're up under the chain. You know, ooh, there's one. I got one, you know. You go to this little bush, and there's gobs of grapes. They got it. My North Carolina buddy, he needed to prune his grapevine. He wasn't getting any grapes. The reason why he wasn't getting any grapes is because it was overgrown with branches that were sucking the energy right out of the branches that produced fruit. These guys got it in Israel. They chopped everything back. Kill kill anything that doesn't produce. Get rid of it. And then it produced. That's what God's doing in our lives. Do you understand that? That's what the vine dressers are going to be all about. There's different times of pruning. It's an ongoing process. There's trimming away excess branches. There's deep cutting also that goes to the core of who we are. In the same way, God will prune us. He prunes us to take away things in our lives that come before Him. You know, we talked about this, right? Love me more than father, mother, brother, sister. Maybe things will happen in our lives to get us to recognize that He's more important. And what do we say to that? All of us. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You're worthy of this. You are good and you are kind. It doesn't make sense, but you are good and you are kind and my heart hurts. But you are good and you are worthy and you're all satisfying. Those things are more important. No, you are more important. Take it away, whatever has to happen. He prunes us to cause us to rely on him to depend on Him, to enjoy Him above all things. And I rejoice every time the Bucks lose. <laughs> I know, y'all Buck fans are, what? Every time those sports teams lose, I go, yes! It's not that important. It's not that important. It doesn't matter. And I look at that ball going through the sky and think, man, I put too much thought into that ball, that pigskin. Who cares? Give me Jesus. Yeah, so you don't want me to coach your team. (laughs) Right, Andrew? We went 0 and what? 0 and 6 or something? 
and I rejoiced <laughs> and said, I don't want to coach ever again. <laughs> Just want Jesus. Just want Jesus. Don't you? Just want Jesus. And Lord, if there's anything in my heart, no matter how small it is, take it away. No matter how big it is or more. Why do you think Paul says these kind of phrases in Philippians 4? Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in, I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is so, so very important, ladies and gentlemen. This is not, and as the Grace on Campus people know, this is not uh, the little tag-on verse, verse 13 there, in order to get you uh, through um, uh, difficulty at work or, or to get you rich. Uh, I, I can't stand it when those guys put on the... I, I, I love Tebow, by the way. I think he's a cool guy. But to put Philippians 4.13 here on your eyes and say, I did the football game like this, I think it minimizes the whole point. Let me explain what I mean by that. Listen to me. Put that and get cut. And lose. And then I'm going to go, yeah, you got it. Do you understand? Be totally broke. And put black eye underneath here. Philippians 4.13, and then you get the verse. Have a father die or a child die and put Philippians 4.13 under your eyes and then you got it. Because then you understand that Christ is more sufficient than anything. That's the point. Abide in Christ because Christ is worthy. And the pruning is all this process of God making us look like him. Look, Hebrews 12, 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when he reproves by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This, these verses are so sobering. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Did you see that? So that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful what? Fruit of righteousness. What is the pruning? It's discipline. God's doing what he has to do in order to produce the fruit of righteousness in us. We're part of the vine. And the vine dresser does what? He makes us produce fruit. These things come into our lives. Are they accidents? No. No accidents with God. He's working. He's producing fruit of righteousness in us. So the first aspect of fruitful branch we looked at is the characteristics of the fruitful branches. Now let's look at the identity of the fruitful branches. The identity of the fruitful branches. You see it in verses 2 and 3. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What? What's his point here? Genuine believers are fruitful branches. We produce fruit. There are really only two options. There aren't non-fruit bearers and fruit bearers. There 
all, every, notice, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. So that it may bear more fruit. We are going to see this first group are the non-believers, the ones that don't bear fruit. And then the second group are the ones that bear fruit. There's more proof here. Look at verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. This is very interesting here. What does Jesus mean by clean? He's mixing his metaphors to a degree because he went from the, the, uh, uh, the vine and he brings up a concept clean which he had talked about back in John 13 when he cleaned their feet, when they washed their feet. And his point was, is that you've been declared right with God. And remember, when he cleaned their feet, one of them wasn't right with God. Who was that? Judas. He said, all of you are clean except for one. And his point was, is that when we become a genuine believer in God, we are declared right with God. If we are right with God, declared right with God, we are then what? Fruit bearers, as opposed to the others that don't bear fruit. Did Judas bear fruit? No, he did not bear fruit. Did Peter bear fruit? Absolutely he bore fruit. He bore fruit after some discipline. There was some pain, but he bore some fruit. And it was a joyful restoration that he then turned around and did what? Demonstrated the glory of God. Fruitful branches are the righteous ones, ladies and gentlemen. They're the ones that are declared right. That's us that have believed in Christ. Every fruit-bearing branch is in a right standing with God. This is crucial, ladies and gentlemen. Our status as a fruit-bearer is not based on the amount of fruit we bear. Our status as a fruit-bearer or our branch, is not based on how much we produce. But we will produce if we are right with Him. It's so important. The ability to bear fruit is tied into our status with God. When you are declared right with God, what has happened? There's been a huge heart change. You've been born again. Your heart's been transformed. So therefore, because you are right with God and He has given grace to you, you then produce fruit. But if your heart has not been transformed and you are not right with God, you won't produce fruit. It's very, very clear. If God has saved us and caused us to be born again, we have a new heart and a new life, and the Spirit of God lives within us, and by His grace we demonstrate Him. That's just obvious. We don't have to argue about that, do we? It's clear. So when somebody cries out, Hypocrisy! Hypocrisy. The answer is very simple. What? Maybe their hearts aren't right. It's very clear. There's lots of people that say they're believers, but they're not. But us that know Christ, we want to follow Him. Our fruit does not save us, but we are saved to produce fruit. So, the fruit-bearing branches are characterized by genuine faith they are identified as those who God has declared clean and transformed. And then finally, the requirements for the fruit branches. Notice, this is so important. This is, I, I think, one of the most crucial parts of the whole thing. He says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, if you notice that little phrase there, abide in me, what kind of verb is that? No, I know I'm getting English here, but what kind of verb is that? Abide in me. What is that? Anybody? It's a Yes, command. It's a command. It's an imperative. Do this. Abide in me. Very, very important. He's telling them to do something. Abide in me and I in you. Now, wait a second. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. It's an implication that he is going to abide in you. You must abide in him. You abide in me, and I will abide in you. It's a guarantee. Abide in me is what Jesus say, says. What does this mean to abide in Christ? Abide in Jesus means to this, and write this down, get this. It's to rely upon him. 
to depend upon Him, to surrender to Him, to trust in Him, to seek Him. That is a pregnant term, abide in me, is this whole concept of being all about Jesus, striving to know Him, seeking Him. Abide in me means to identify with Him. I am His and He is mine. Abide in me means to obey Him. All of that is included in abiding in Him. Desiring to do what He says and doing it, abiding in Him. It means to reject the world, to rely upon Him, depend upon Him, surrender to Him, trust Him, seek Him. That's abiding in Christ. Now how often do we have to do this? All all the time. This is our life. This is what branches that are attached to the vine do. We are constantly, always striving to know Him more, to rely upon Him, to depend on Him. That's what we are. We are just, we are constantly abiding in Him. And this is required of all believers. Abide in the vine. So as you abide in Him, you see what happens. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. What's the implication? If you're not relying upon Him, if you're not seeking Him, if you're not relying on Him, if you're not thinking on Him, if you're not meditating on Him, if you're not obeying Him, surrendering to Him, you can't do anything. You can't do anything. You can't produce fruit. Do you see? This why this I love that song, Be Thou My Vision. It's a perfect song. It's like i got to have my eyes completely on you all the time. I need you. How often? It's every hour, right? I need you every hour, right? No, I need you every second. I need you all the time. Every second of every hour, all the time. Every millisecond. Reminds me of Spurgeon. You know, as he walks up, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You know, what's the point? He needs them as he preaches. I need you, God. I need you, God. I need you, God. I need you, God. Y'all don't know how many times I'm preaching and there's times where my heart is like, oh, God, I need you. you please, I'm praying to God as I'm talking to you. <laughs> oh, I need you. Every second. Abide in him. Seek him. Strive to know him. Well, I guess if that was one command that maybe capsulizes the command for a believer, it would be that. Abide in Christ. They must abide in Christ to do what they were created to do because they can't bear fruit unless they are abiding in Him. Fruit comes from abiding in Christ. It doesn't come independent of God. Ever. Nothing. Not one thing you do. Let me ask you a question. Old Testament, oh, this is tricky. Old Testament. Did Daniel do righteousness on his own? No. How did Enoch walk with God? Because he abided in God. It's the only time that we do righteousness. It's the only time we do anything good. Otherwise, we have to change the phrase, for apart from me, I can do a little bit. Right? He didn't say that. Apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing at all. Nothing. Nothing. Do you get that? I was brought to that point just recently with my child raising. Standing in the shower crying, God, God, how? How I can't change hearts. I can't change a heart. I can't make my child believe. I can't make him It was a good spot to be. It was a great spot to be. Because he is God. And I trust in him and he's my only hope. My children will believe only if God works in their hearts. My children will only follow and obey me if God works in their hearts. I will only obey him if God works in my heart. I need him. You need him every second of the day. 
Finally, Jesus wraps up this section with the fruitful branches with the summary. He says in John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think it's very significant here that he doesn't just imply a little fruit. It implies that there is, God doesn't make junk branches, <laughs> in a sense. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, God, God's not the kind of vine dresser that says, oh, well, that one, you know, he's just weak. It's okay, no big deal. You know, he gets a little bit here and a little bit there. It's going to be some much fruit. It's going to come. Now, again, remember what I said about fruit. It's not always what you see on the outside. <laughs> What's going on in the heart? And he's going to do it. Jesus is the vine again, the source of life. The disciples are the branches. We live only because we're attached to him. The disciples who abide in him will bear much fruit. And the basis of all this, all fruitfulness, is Christ working in us. No genuine biblical success or fruit comes from anywhere other than him. You got it? That, I think that should be our motto verse, right? That should be every Christian's motto verse right there, at the, especially that last phrase. You ready? Repeat after me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> Get it. That should be your life verse. You need him. I need him. All the time. The contrast is obvious. you got the fruitless branches, and we'll wrap up with this. Look at the contrast is obvious. Fruitless branches are explained in three ways. The fruitless branch branches do not bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, at first glance, some people, one commentator says, oh, well, it just means he kind of picks them up. No, 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 folks. No, it takes away means judges. Let me explain. You can see it down in the, ver previous, or the later verses. He takes them away. What happens? The fruitless branches face eventual separation from the vine. Notice completely. He takes away. They face eventual judgment for not honoring and serving the Lord. Notice, look, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. What's the gist? You got fruit-bearing branches, and you got branches that don't bear any fruit. The ones that don't bear any fruit, what happens? They're burned. Taken away and burned. There's really only two options. Fruit bearers or non-fruit bearers. Now, if you're anything like me, I don't see as much of my fruit as I would like. Are you anything like me, any of y'all? Like, man, I see a lot of depravity still. I see a lot of sinfulness. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to encourage you just a little bit. That's probably a good sign. Let me tell you why. Because the closer to Jesus you get, the more you abide in him, the more sinful you're going to see yourself be. Why do you think I believe totally that Romans 7 is Paul talking as a mature believer? Because he gets it. He sees how bad it is. You are a wretched person. How wretched are we? Get close to Jesus and you will see how wretched you are. Walk with him for a while and you will see it. But the reality is, is that the unfruit-bearing branches don't see sin in themselves at all. Do you understand? They, If they see sin, they say it's not that bad and there's something I can do to make up for it, which is sinful on top of sinful. Do you understand? A non-fruit-bearing bush, bush or branch does what? Justifies all sin that they do. And sees themselves as a relatively good person. And then seeks to elevate themselves by making up for their sin. Or covering it. That's not bearing fruit. Repentance brings forth the fruit of righteousness. Which, if we're sinful and we still sin, and we do, which means that we should be doing a lot of repenting. 
And when we do, we will then bring forth the fruit of righteousness. Right? As we turn to God, we will demonstrate these things. This is Jesus' way of saying there are two groups. Branches that don't bear fruit, which will end up in judgment, and branches that do bear fruit, which I will prune and make produce more fruit. In conclusion, I want to challenge all of you. You must abide in Christ. Seek Him. Rely upon Him. Depend upon Him. Obey Him. Receive Him. Identify yourself with Him. Pursue Him. All by the grace of God that works within you. Because you know He's working. Crave the Bible so you can know Christ. Seek to know Him more. Because that's where He's found. I want to conclude with this challenge. Abide in Christ. Ladies, I know that a couple of you are going to be leaving. I guess if I could give you just one command, that would be it. Abide in the Messiah. For He is good. And His love is everlasting. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and Your kindness towards us. Thank You for Christ. Help us, Father, to abide in You. Help us, Father, to know Christ, to seek Him. Oh, Lord, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to stray, as the hymn writer says. We just ask that you constantly, continually draw us back to yourself and help us to know and be satisfied with Christ alone. We trust you. We look to you. We rely on you. We abide in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.